Welcome back, listeners, to the 12th, that's right, the 12th season of the Religious Studies Project. I'm your host, Andy Alexander, and I am very glad to be back here talking with you all at the start or soon-to-be start of the new semester, depending where you're tuning in from. There have been a few changes here at the RSP, with some longtime editors passing the torch to new team members. I'm so very grateful for the excellent group of scholars working behind the scenes to help keep the RSP running smoothly. You might not hear their voices in many episodes, but they're an integral part of our team, so I want to highlight their excellent work here at the start of our new season. This week will be a little different because we're kicking off with our first RSP Monday of the season today, and tomorrow, Tuesday the 30th, we'll air our first RSP discourse of the season. It's like a new TV series, right? Start the new season with two episodes to make up for the break over the holiday. And for those of you traveling or carpooling to Basser and Milton Keynes this week, We've definitely got you covered for the journey, so be sure to tune in. One final point in relation to Basser, the RSP co-founders, Chris and David, will be attending the conference, and David will be doing a social media takeover during the conference. We'll have more details on that to follow, so be sure to check our socials for that information. And now, on to our first episode of the season. Today, I have the great pleasure of speaking with Dr. Falgany A. Sheff, who is Professor of Women's, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. Her research explores the intersections of violence, security, and political ontology as these lead to technologies of race and racialization as a strategy of political and social management of various populations. Dr. Sheff has served as an associate editor for the journal Hypatia, and on the executive committee for the Society for Phenomenology and Existentialist Philosophy. She was also a member of the Immigrant Rights Commission of San Francisco and is an organizer of the California Roundtable for Philosophy and Race. Dr. Sheth's first book, Toward a Political Philosophy of Race, was published in 2009 with SUNY Press. But today, we are here to talk about your new book, Unruly Women, Race, Neocolonialism, and the Hijab, which was published earlier this year in January 2022 with Oxford. And though you've appeared in a variety of interviews, this is your first appearance here at the RSP. So thank you so much for joining me here today. Thanks so much, Andy. I'm glad to be here. Excellent. Well, before we dive into the book, I wanted to first just ask you a little bit about your training and your background, because you actually, you're not, you don't work in religious studies, but so much of what you're doing in this book definitely relates to discussions that happen in our field as well. So could you give us a little background of your own training and how you, you know, got into this work? What, what drew you to it? Sure. Well, my undergrad degree was in rhetoric at UC Berkeley before Butler, I will say. So I graduated before <laughs> Judith Butler got there, but it was a very broad liberal arts kind of discipline that I think allowed me to really read broadly. So, you know, there's a rhetoric to everything. And so really got to study the the art of persuasion, as it were. So spent about four years doing that and really discovered just how much I loved it. And I think more than my later degree in philosophy. So I moved from there to a PhD at the New School in European philosophy or, you know, what they these days, I guess, call continental philosophy, perhaps even more so than continental philosophy. It was the rhetoric undergrad that had much more influence on me. We were talking a little bit before we started this interview about discourse analysis, and that was very much what I was doing, you know, as an undergrad. And so I think that's kind of carried me 
through and I would argue beyond philosophy. And so now I'm in a women, gender and sexuality studies department. So still doing kind of the same thing. Uh, how, you know, sort of what, what got you interested in this work? Um, I mean, I would imagine, you know, what's not every undergrad student is going to major in, in rhetoric, though I can certainly understand my own undergrad training was a bit different and focused more in those areas, though in religious <laughs> studies. So yeah, what, what drew you to study rhetoric? I mean, it was interesting because I actually thought I would be, I might be an English major and I took intro English was kind of a very hot and packed and difficult to get into requirement at Berkeley. And so I took an 8am class my first year only to have a very bizarre uh, English class, namely, and it was taught by a graduate student. And as it turned out, it was not at all novels, or so I thought, but actually philosophy of science. So we read Paul Feyerabend and A.J. Iyer and Whitehead, and I was just clueless. I just thought, I have no idea what any of this is. And later, I came back to really appreciate it. But I really was interested in kind of this just... And I think rhetoric really brought brought this out for me, but just the study of how language is used and deployed to create yes. certain kinds of reality, right? Mm-hmm. Which is very post-structuralist. And so, you know, I think that was really something that has become quite endemic to my thinking, critical and endemic. And so I, I, I just literally cannot imagine approaching politics or any other field without that. And so I often, I mean, I'd love to go beyond it and I do, but I really just, I often just get distracted and stuck at, okay, so why are people saying what they're saying? Which, you know, you can imagine makes me a very um, fun person to have a friendship (laughs) with because I end up kind of being very, you know, critical about all these kind of things. But that's what it is. So I think that's really also what carried through both through my last book, Toward a Political Philosophy of Race, but this one as well. It was basically, you know, so what does it mean to think about liberal feminism and to try to understand the impact is behind wanting Muslim women to be, if you will, suitably free, which has really been a subtext of the United States quite openly since 9-11. And now that we're kind of in our 21st year of the never ending war on terror, I think that subtext is really kind of metamorphosed in all kinds of subtle ways. So we've moved beyond this question of of, well, we haven't really. I was asked this in an interview that I did a few days ago. But well, why do Muslim women veil? And I don't think I can say often enough that I'm completely uninterested. <laughs> yeah. In I mean, I'm interested in why they veil, but I'm really uninterested in interrogating it critically, as if there's something nefarious or strange or suspicious about it. And, and so, how to even begin answering that question? And well, this is it. Wait, right? I think even philosophers are really terrible at this because they really think that there's something quite unique to the notion of intention and intentionality. And it breaks down when we're thinking about different kinds of cultural norms and practices. And this is not to say cultural relativism, but actually to kind of suggest that there is no particular kind of cultural objectivity from which we can measure deviants, if you will, or outliers. And so, yeah, so I'm not interested in that question, but I realized that in order to get to the heart of what I wanted to do, I really had to excavate all of these different layers of discourse from what liberalism is, from what so-called conventional liberal feminism looks like to what, you know, certain kinds of norms of so-called 
democracies are, right? I really had to just excavate layer after layer after layer after layer in order to finally get to the thing that I wanted to talk about, which is what does discrimination look like in a country, in a nation that really prides itself on multiculturalism, religious freedom, and this idea that everybody has equal protection under the law. Because we know that if those were true, we would no longer be thinking about them or talking about them, right? That they were just evaporated as concerns. So that's kind of what I wanted to get to. And I just don't think it's a surface level investigation. So you have to go through all these layers to then get to something else. So literally, I feel like I spent the first half of the book just like unpacking all of that. Yeah. Exactly. And, and part of the frustration was, well, how do I do that? And also just not bore people to death and keep it interesting. (laughs) I think you were successful there. Thank you. (laughs) It was was a real struggle. So I'm glad that you think so. Yeah, well, I mean, and and this actually is a great segue into my next question for you. And, and, And that's, you know, what are these, these prevalent discourses that you're working through, but also in, in your areas of work in philosophy and gender and race studies, like what are these dominant conversations that are happening and how is your book engaging those? Uh, Is it, you know, kind of contributing further? Is it diverging a bit? Can you tell us a little bit about the state of the field in that sense? Yeah. I mean, I, I am ultimately extremely interdisciplinary and I think, you know, everybody likes to say that they're interdisciplinary. So you might just want to take what I have to say with a grain of salt. But I mean, part of it for me is that I don't think that any one discipline has all the answers. I don't think it can have all the answers. And so I'm really suspicious of attempts to answer questions within one discipline or to do research within one discipline. So I often say to the consternation of trusted colleagues that I'm kind of anti-philosophical. But part of that then is to diverge from what I think is considered to be good philosophical method, which is to parse out all kinds of political concepts and categories until they become apolitical or neutral, which is to say that then they literally just kind of become insignificant as far as I'm concerned. Was I think kind of so for me, anti-philosophical method is taking seemingly neutral concepts and putting them together and seeing what the implications of those are. So part of the direction of this book is, on the one hand, I wanted to kind of talk about the connections between racism and colonialism in a country that does not have the same origin stories about colonialism as, for example, Europeans do. And so the U.S. is colonial story is really about the the antagonistic encounters with indigenous populations so that plausibly Americans can say, hey, you know, we really didn't colonize anybody until the late 1800s or 1700s, you know, Puerto Rico, Hawaii, the Philippines, etc. And actually, that's not, is that, is it 1795? No, I'm sorry, it was 1895. So Americans can kind of withdraw from any kind of charge of colonialism with regard to immigrants or British colonialism over India or over Africa parts of Africa. And, you know, and so what that means is that, is that there's a certain kind of conversation that happens in this country about immigrants that feels like it's relatively recent. And it ends up being part of this 
strange mythology about how we're all a country of immigrants. And so you just have groups who do different things and they come and they assimilate. And that just seems, I mean, it is, I think, patently untrue. In part because, you know, until we start acknowledging genocide of indigenous populations, really, we haven't really started with the true story. And also that slavery was an intrinsic part. African, West African slavery was an intrinsic part of the origins. So where does that leave us with regard to Muslims? And, you know, not just Muslims, but immigrants in general. And part of the story of colonialism in Europe and in places like India and the Middle East and Africa is this kind of quest to civilize, right? That's part of the story. It's like, okay, how do we civilize these backwards people and these savages? And that story actually papers over the ruthless drive for the extraction of resources, right? So this is what I mean when I say there's layer after layer after layer after layer. So what does this have to do with Muslim women? And so part of what I was interested in is the ways in which then the conversation about whether or not Muslim women are liberated or autonomous or free or independent is actually a continuation of the same questions that British colonial administrations and French colonial administrations and Portuguese colonial administrations have been asking for centuries, right? So it's part of the same, what I'm calling civilizing drive, but we Mm -hmm. don't recognize it in the U S because it's cut off from that particular history. And what I wanted to suggest was that actually crossing the ocean, when immigrants cross the ocean, that attitude actually it doesn't just cross with them. I mean, it crosses and it's already here that there is this history that we know subconsciously that allows liberal feminists and liberals in general to feel quite um, entitled to ask that question. Why do Muslim women bail? Why do they do what they do? Why don't they look like us? Why don't they behave the way that we do? And that these are not innocent questions, that these are actually historically and ideologically loaded questions. So that it's in a way, it's kind of like turning the anthropological lens back on ourselves and to say, well, Mm -hmm. why are we interested in this question? That's an excellent way of framing this, because they are, as you say, very loaded questions that are often taken for granted in the U.S., right? I mean, predominant understandings of what individuals are or what freedom is emerge from colonial endeavors. But the social groups in power, white people fail to recognize the coercive and regulatory work of these ideas because they haven't had to adjust their actions or behaviors to fit a particular mold. Yeah. And the the deceptive part of it also is that it's almost like these questions are coming ex nihilo out of nowhere. Yeah. But there's a history and it's the history of colonialism. And so that's why I call it neocolonialism, because I want to suggest that it's actually somewhat different from colonialism in in India and Africa and the so-called mm-hmm. Middle East. But to say that it's a new version, it's a it's a reconstitution of those colonial attitudes that are at play here. And that a little bit like the Frankfurt School and, and critical theorists would argue is like these things are already they're here. They're part yes. of our the material basis of society. They're in the air that we breathe. And so we've already internalized these attitudes by the time we become adults. And then we forget that that's the source of these kinds of questions. And so to start from there, to ask the question what discrimination looks like, I think lands us in a very different place than to ask the question as if innocently 
right? You know, is there really discrimination unless we can see violence in this extremely spectacular way? The answer is no. And then the and then the conversation stops. And so I wanted to start from a different place to say, actually, you can't see it unless you see everything that came before it or a lot of the things that came before it. No, that makes a lot of sense. Could you then talk a bit about how you work through these discourses of neocolonialism as, as you want to frame it and give us some examples of, of sort of what's happening here? What's at stake really in issues of discrimination in issues of sort of regulating Muslim women's bodies and black Muslim women's bodies um, in the U.S.? Absolutely. One of the examples is chapter four, where I try to compare the way the hijab is received to the sari and how the sari is considered this real glamorous, sexy outfit and is much more accepted as part of like Bollywood and Indian pop culture than the veil is. And that's not a coincidence. And so I actually kind of trace this out in this piece to say, actually, at one point, the sari looked very different from what we understand it to be today. And you see it in a whole range of kind of 18th and 19th century artworks and discussions. But also the history of the sari was actually quite controversial, because it was considered to conceal too much And so the sari was actually the source of antagonism between British missionaries who were shocked to see that women wore saris without a blouse, that their breasts were exposed, and they wanted to help them discover modesty. And so they made them waistcoats uh, to wear underneath the sari. And then what happened was you had Brahmin priests who were really upset and offended that lower caste women were wearing these waistcoats. So violence then ensued from the priests themselves. So you have an interest, I mean, interesting and violent interaction of race and patriarchy together and caste coming together to basically punish Hindu women, lower caste Hindu women. So the sari was then basically eventually modified and made acceptable and became, you know, something that like British women like Cherie Blair, who was the wife of the former Prime Minister Tony Blair, Goldie Hawn would wear them, Anna Kornikova, who was a tennis star, used to be a tennis star. So it became very glamorous. And in the meantime, what was interesting was that actually in the 19th century, women would actually, mothers would beat, <laughs> would beat their daughters for wearing their sari like Muslim women, like covering their heads on the grounds that they were concealing too much, right? So it's really interesting the way that that kind of history plays and oscillates back and forth. And so part of what I suggest there is that actually the hijab and the niqab have not really had enough of a exposure to the modernizing tendencies under Western capitalism to become acceptable, if you will. Not that they should, but I think that's actually part of the problem. So that's why they're received very differently. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it definitely speaks to how persistent the so-called issue of Muslim women veiling remains in our public discourse, not just in the US, but North America, Europe, and so on. Veiling seems to be regarded as overtly antagonistic and, and a threat to American democracy or values. 
Yeah. And the irony is, you know, I mean, granted, the topic at some level is about Muslim women. But part of what I want to suggest is that colonial politics, racial politics, Western politics always seem to play out on the bodies of women. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, the way in which we're looking at, uh, you know, reproductive politics right now, I think really kind of echoes that point. So in a way, while my book is about Muslim women, it's actually trying to suggest parallels to other kinds of phenomena that this is, you know, this is just, it's about stuff playing out on the bodies of women. And, you know, Franz Fanon also kind of... Mm -hmm points to this as a decolonial philosopher in Algeria, you know, he pointed to women in Algeria and their ability to kind of code switch by going back and forth between wearing the veil and then camouflaging themselves as westernized women in the way of the French, that they could actually engage in a lot of kind of subversive activity because they could use this tendency to have politics play out on the bodies of women to their advantage. Right. So that it could Mm -hmm. be strategic, that it wasn't just kind of one way. And so, you know, so that's kind of what I wanted to to point out. And so those examples, I think, really give us a sense of what women are supposed to look like or not look like and how they end up being shaped through different kinds of almost incidental battles. I love how you phrase that there, the strategic effects and consequences of these discourses and, and laws. But often the focus on the rhetoric or discourses is regarded as somehow secondary or disconnected from the very real consequences that people face, as if the implicit and strategic work of those discourses isn't directly impacting or you know, shaping our social worlds. You address this somewhat when you talk about the transparency norms in your book. Could you give us an example? of that and kind of explain what you mean by that? Yeah. I mean, I think part of that comes about through just even questions about like, well, what do autonomous working women look like? Right. So they can be, you know, they can look slightly different ethnically, right? But they, at some level, they have to kind of ascribe to the notion of professional wear and wearing Mm -hmm. pantsuits or dresses. I mean, there was a case in back in 1991, Price Waterhouse Cooper, which was a big accounting firm, which is still, which has been broken up since then, where a woman sued because she was not promoted to partner. And the reasons that they gave quite unabashedly were because she wasn't dressing in a feminine enough way. And so they said, well, why don't you try again next year? Your work is really good. Try again next year, but, you know, try to wear some more heels and skirts. And that was 91. And that, you know, so she sued at that point. And part of it was she was queer. And I think they were really trying to re-influence how she looked to both the clients and within the office itself. So quite fascinating to think about what it means to look proper Right. So, so, but femininity also tends to intersect with questions of class and professionalism and again, kind of cultural myopias, right? Like, um, I remember my mother, you know, when she came to this country back in the 1970s, you know, she 
was interviewing for various kinds of executive, low-level executive jobs. And she really wanted to give the interview her full due respect. And so she would wear a sorry to the interview because she thought, well, this is formal. Mm -hmm. This is about as formal as you can get. And she was turned away from interviews for not being professional. And finally, and because she had her own, her own limitations about, you know, what was okay to wear or not wear, she wouldn't wear skirts because she was a married woman. And she felt like these things were improper. You know, she finally bought of all things like a hot pink pantsuit. And that Mm -hmm. did the trick. It got her in the door for interviews. Flash forward 20 years, I was temping my way through graduate school. I could type fast. And so I moved to New York and I was, you know, interviewing, not interviewing, but I was getting temp jobs, but I was turned away at the door in New York City. Like literally they wouldn't buzz me in. There was a lot of security in these office buildings. They would see me through the door. They would see that I was wearing pants and they would not let me in. They would literally send me home because I was not wearing a skirt. So... Yeah. And in every other way, I looked perfectly, you know, secular. But I think that's also part of it is like, you know, what does secular look like? Secular Mm -hmm. is imbued with certain kinds of, I would argue, cultural, but also religious biases, like secular, secular in certain ways is not secular in other ways, right? So you can have nuns who wear habits, but wear pantsuits, right? But um, but women who wear the veil and, or wear a sari at, at least 40, 50 years ago was completely unacceptable. No, yeah. I mean, or even even black women uh, wearing their natural hair, whether it's in the workplace or in schools, right? Dress codes in schools. I mean, these are things that have become very common, common issues that keep cropping up. And so, yeah, I mean, it definitely plays out in a number of ways. I I kind of want to touch on what you said, because I know I remember you were kind of looking at some of these issues and and how they were addressed, especially some of the cases with regard to potentially it being a religious freedom issue or a race issue. And part of, I think, in the process of, of completing the book, you said something about having to go back and sort of rethink some of your approaches to the what you were looking at because the religious freedom issues and cases are filed separately from racial discrimination cases. Well, yeah. In fact, I was you and I were thinking along similar lines because I was thinking about the way that Black Muslim women are read in the courtroom. And so, so many of my cases are about the courtroom is very different from other women of color who are Muslim. So they really are challenged about even whether or not they're real Muslims because they're often African-American. And it's almost, it feels very difficult for many white Americans to imagine that African-Americans would voluntarily or willingly be Muslim. And as we know, right, religion, I mean, Islam has an extreme, in the United States nation, there is a very kind of important political response to the years of subjugation under slavery, which involves also rejecting Christianity. But yes, but I didn't really understand how significant this was until I wrote about a certain case that happened in Michigan, where this woman who was in a small, she was, I didn't, you know, it was a religious discrimination case, but she actually went to file a 
a case in small claims court because she was trying to get some money back from a car rental agency that she thought had charged her unfairly. And the judge in the case refused to listen to her case unless she took off, it turns out, unless she took off the niqab and not the hijab, although he called it hijab. And he said the reason was because he needed to be able to see her face to see if she was telling the truth. He needed transparency. And I remember at the time going, okay, well, you know, there's all kinds of reasons why this is disingenuous or less believable than others might have it. And the ACLU actually filed a letter on behalf of this plaintiff on the grounds, you know, and just said, well, we have judges who are blind who have to ascertain truth telling. We have witnesses who are in witness protection or who record their testimonies, you know, so we can't really see that this was in the days before Zoom. And so it doesn't make sense that she would need to do this. And so basically, he also asked her, he said, well, well, if you take this off, I will listen to your case. And she said, I can't. The tenets of my faith prohibit me from doing this. And he goes, well, that's not true. And I thought, wow, he's telling her what her faith is about. And she goes, no, 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 I really do. Like, I can't do this. This is this is a violation of my commitment to my faith. And he goes, well, that's not what Muslims do. And you know how I know? Because I've talked to some practicing Muslims and they told me the hijab is a requirement, but not what you're wearing. I thought, wait, she's Muslim. What is he talking about? And it was literally after I wrote a whole article about transparency using this case. And I then found another case that I was, you know, that was weird and puzzling in its own way. And it turned out it was a woman who was a weight, uh, weight person at an IHOP in Oxford, Mississippi. And she had filed a religious discrimination suit because her colleagues were harassing her in all kinds of ways. But part of the transcript also pointed to racial epithets. So they were calling her all kinds of racial epithets. And... She and the judge in the case said, well, and that's when I realized that, you know, she was um, African-American and the judge in the case said, yeah, there's a lot of racial epithets, but no, I mean, really, you were not fired as a result of racial discrimination. And by the way, if you wanted to do that, you should have filed under racial discrimination rather than religious discrimination. And it's too late anyway. And there were just it was such a strange opinion. And that hit me that her tone was one that I later talk about in the book is dismissal dismissed her, but in this real, like not just technical sense, but this kind of, I don't take what you say seriously sense. Yeah. And that's when I thought I've heard that tone before. And I went back to that case, which was taking place, which took place in Michigan and it was a religious discrimination suit. And that's when I realized it was actually, there was a whole layer of race that Mm -hmm. was invisible, implicit, that I just did not pick up on. I picked up on the fact that something was going on, but I couldn't figure out what that was. And it turned out that this judge had trouble taking this woman seriously because she was an African-American woman who wore the niqab and did not believe that she could really be Muslim or know anything about Islam. And that was, that was, it just completely changed the trajectory of the book for me. In thinking about what, cases are filed and how, as well as the racist epithets and the transcripts that that you mentioned, is there some advantage to filing such cases as religious discrimination instead of racial discrimination? Is that something you came across? I mean, it's interesting because, I mean, we immediately think of 
encounters and controversies having to do with the hijab or the niqab or other things as kind of cases having to do with religion. That's true. Yeah. And so we don't really think about the role that race plays, but I think it's also the nature of how discrimination suits are able to be filed in American law, which is to say you can file under race or under religion, sexuality. It is very difficult to file under both. What I'm wondering, I think, is is not so much that, that these cases should be filed in this way, but if there is a certain impetus for filing them as religious discrimination because of how religious freedom, at least when it is, when, when something is decided in favor um, of people in these, these cases, is there something about the gains of being granted that so-called religious freedom that, that are not present in winning in a racial discrimination lawsuit? I know that so many things do get classified or contested as religious freedom because of the rights and privileges that are then granted, but I don't know if that in, in a racial discrimination lawsuit, if that would be the case. I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure. And the thing is that the way that we classify race in the United States, I'm not sure that one could actually successfully file a suit having to do. Well, that's kind of why I wonder if that's why they're filing religious discrimination lawsuits, because that's something that would at least have more potential for success given the ways in which the U.S. has dealt with and continues to deal with race in a very... Yeah, I think that's probably right. Part of it, I guess I wonder too, is, you know, there's always the issue of like, well, one, these things might not be actually related to religion, but what they do relate to, I think, is that sense of the individual that you touch on. There are constant kind of, at least in religious studies, debates about religious freedom and what it is and you know, oh, it's it's vague, or there's not a clear understanding. Well, like, of course, there's not a clear understanding. Because, yeah. right, it, it is something that needs to be malleable to maintain a certain status quo. Yeah. I mean, as, as awful as that sounds, that's, that's why it works well. Well, and also because I think, you know, it's, it's the way that religious discrimination cases are funneled through the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, that it's about kind of trying to get corporations or companies to make accommodations before a lawsuit is filed to try to clear the pipeline a little bit. Whereas I think often race discrimination lawsuits require class action often, often, Mm -hmm. but sometimes that that becomes a much more powerful way to launch a successful suit so that it's almost the opposite of the individual, right? It's about a feature that is about kind of, that has affected people on a mass level. Oh, yeah. So that might be part of the the divergence, but it's a really interesting question. I don't think I have a good answer for it. Oh, no, that's that's fantastic. I really appreciate you humoring my kind of odd question out of left field there for you. But it was just something that was on my mind. And so I thought I'd see if it was, you know, something that you happen to come across in your work and research for the project. But in thinking about all of the examples that you discuss and ideas and issues that you work through and unpack in this book. I wonder if you could give our listeners a sense of how you could see someone potentially using this in the classroom. Yeah, I mean, I wrote this to be accessible, right? So I think there's a number of chapters that would work in terms of 
feminist philosophy, thinking about liberal feminism or other kinds of feminist takes. I think it would work really well on a class on race and colonialism. I think it would work well in like a legal studies class because there are a number of cases that I, I treat separately that I've mentioned it might be good takeaways. And I think it would especially work in a political theory class on liberalism, if you will, but also in just kind of an intro philosophy class that maybe talked about cultural diversity and questions of so-called freedom and discrimination. So I think, I mean, I wrote it in order to be able to, you know, enable students from a range of different fields to be able to read it as well as experts. But that's kind of how I was directing it. Before we wrap up, just could you tell us uh, what you are working on at the moment and, you know, what we can be looking out for in the coming couple of years? Yeah, I'm really kind of interested in pursuing questions of how violence gets communicated, like what kind of violence is considered worthy of political consternation and what kind of violence is not. So, for example, when we talk about gun violence, we have a very clear picture of the victims of it. And that picture Mm -hmm. often involves, correctly so, right, school kids or you know, like the, unfortunately, a number of the, the, the events that we've had to think about over the last few months, Uvalde and other places. But I'm also kind of, I'm really interested in the ways in which violence that happens to less valued members of society gets erased. And so I'm thinking, I'm trying to think about how that gets framed verbally, discursively, but also the ways in which it gets, it's actually really important to hide it in order to highlight violence against other kinds of um, valued citizens. So that's a a project called Violence and Vulnerability. I also want to, I'm trying to develop some of the concepts out of the book that we just um, were discussing today, which we really didn't talk about very much, but things like dismissal. I want to kind of pursue that a little bit. It's like, what is, what is an existential dismissal look like? And part of the argument that I make in the book, besides dismissal, is to say that actually for certain groups of Muslim women, they're really caught between a rock and a hard spot in the sense that yeah. they have a lot of pressure to succeed as Western professional women. But we also know that the playing field is such that they won't be able to succeed. And so I yeah. call that excruciation because I think, you know, literally like its etymology, it's it's quite tortuous and painful and excruciating. And so I'm trying to develop some of that. So those are some of the projects that I, you know, I am working on this year. So hopefully you'll see some of that soon. Yeah, that sounds really fascinating. Uh, we'll have to definitely keep an eye out and see if, you know, maybe we can have you back on and talk more about that because I think that those are actually yeah, really fascinating discussions to have, especially I'm thinking at least in relation to my own work with um, American Muslims and, and sort of there is very like narrow space of, of what's permitted and what's deemed as acceptable. So yeah, that sounds absolutely fascinating. Um, just to remind everybody, the book that we've been discussing today is Unruly Women, Race, Neocolonialism and the Hijab by Dr. Falgani A. Sheff. And I just want to thank you again so much for joining me here today. It's been such a pleasure getting to talk to you. This was wonderful. Thanks so much, Andy. Appreciate it. Thanks so much again to Dr. Falgani A. Chef for joining us here today at the Religious Studies Project. And a big thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. 
please head over to social media to let us know what you think. We'd love to hear your questions, thoughts, ideas. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Also, be sure to head to our website at www.religiousstudiesproject.com, where you can find out more information about this episode and find the transcript for it as well. And as always, we appreciate any support that you're able to give. Please consider signing up to become a patron at patreon.com slash project RS for as little as one dollar, one pound, one euro a month, you know, we'll, anything. Every little bit goes a long way to helping support the work here of our team. Or consider a one-time donation via PayPal. You can also support the RSP through our Amazon affiliates links, which are located on our website. At no extra cost to you, a small portion of your purchase will be donated to us here at the RSP. So if you're able to support us financially, we would greatly appreciate that. However, we know that's not always possible. So do please like, share, and comment on our posts. Tomorrow, not next week, tomorrow, we'll be back with our first discourse episode of the year. And we have a great lineup. This episode will be hosted by Emily Cruz, and she'll be joined by Richard Newton and Theo Wildcroft. So it is sure to be an excellent discussion. So be sure to tune in. And until next time, until tomorrow, all that's left to say is thanks for listening. The RSP is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish Charitable Incorporated Organization, charity number SC047750. Brought to you by Editor-in-Chief Andy Alexander and founding editors Chris Cotter and David Robertson. Our features are edited by Israel Dominguez and Savannah Finver and our Opportunities Digest by Trevor Lynn. Audio editing by Alex Matthews and Nathan Springer. Podcast transcription by Ayesha Javid and Jacob Noblet. And social media managed by Candice Mixon. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our Amazon.com, .co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, iTunes, Instagram and other portals. Thanks for listening.